Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. He came to prominence as principal of the Blaine Elementary School. He made his name as an outspoken critic of Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and now he's running to unseat the mayor in a very crowded race. This weekend, it's a conversation with educator and challenger Troy LaRavier. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. This is not a household name, but it is a memorable one, and it's Troy LaRavier's voice raised against Mayor Rahm Emanuel that has put him on the map. The former school principal is my guest this week. He was born on the north side and raised on the south side in poverty. He served in the Navy, got a college education, and married the woman he's known since he was seven years old and who was by his side for much of the time since. Troy LaRavier taught in schools throughout the city, but in 2011, he became the principal at the Northside's Blaine Elementary School, and he led it to become the number one ranked neighborhood school in Chicago. But he felt compelled to speak out against what he says was intimidation of school principals, failures of privatization, and disinvestment in custodial services. He was politically active and was featured in two Bernie Sanders campaign commercials. He would be fired for insubordination after that because officials say he violated CPS policies. He denies that. And despite his termination, he was elected president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. And he is here with us today. Troy LaRavier, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, one correction, I was actually born on the south side. My mother's from the north side. Okay, well, thank you. For, Michael uh, Reese uh, Hospital. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's uh, answer the question that comes to most people's minds when they first hear that you're running, besides, what, another candidate for mayor, <laughs> um, which I get a lot of. Um, why should people in Chicago entrust the city's future to an educator who was fired more or less by the man he's trying to replace? Well, I think there are two wide-ranging answers to that question, and both are important. The first is that you need four basic, there are four basic criteria, uh, in my understanding, of running for office, being a good steward, particularly in an executive office like mayor. The first is that you have to have a record of responsible management of public money. And as principal of Blaine, I manage tens of millions of dollars without incident, without pay to play, without corruption, without a dime being in question. Uh, this mayor can't say the same thing. The second thing you need is a record of improving public institutions. And as you mentioned, I certainly have that. And I also have that record as president of the Principals Association. Getting into a public institution and leaving it better than you found it. You know, that's what I've been able to do. The second is based on the fact that there's so, excuse me, the third is based on the fact that there's so much corruption. To me, corruption is our number one issue in government. And if corruption is based on the fact that our elected officials, we have too many elected officials who are willing to sacrifice the public good for private gain, then what you need are elected officials who have a record 
of sacrificing private gain for public good. And I certainly have that record. And that leads into the sort of the insinuation and the question in terms of why I was terminated. You know, I was terminated because I spoke out against that corruption. I was terminated after being given three awards by the same mayor who who terminated me for the performance of my school. I was the only, I was one of only four principals out of more than 700 at the time I started who received the mayor's principal merit award three years running, one of only four in the city. So one of the tops, the top school and one of the top principals in this district. So I have that record. And I think the last thing we want out of an elected official, particularly when we see that the problem in our city is the vast inequity, are the vast inequities that we have, is someone who has actually has a record of being committed to equity, distributing resources and investing in parts of the community that, or parts of the city, communities that are underinvested in, that need it more. But you can't or you won't invest in those areas if you don't believe in the people and the families who live there. And so you need a mayor that so equity comes with belief. And I have the commitment to equity and the belief in the people uh, that's needed to 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 back up that investment. Um, and I want to talk about that kind of investment uh, maybe a little bit further down. But just because of the uh, the atmosphere that we're in these days, I want to hit uh, one of the headline issues first, and that is um, the uh, Chicago Public Schools uh, sex abuse scandal. I mean, Illinois lawmakers are now already talking about uh, working toward legislation that would help protect Chicago public school mm-hmm. children from sexual abuse by teachers, staff, coaches, and others. The city council wants hearings. Outside experts have been brought in. Uh, Mayor Emanuel has pledged that uh, that all efforts are going to be made uh, to right this problem. Is Mayor Emanuel doing the right things now? So we have to recognize that Mayor Emanuel was silent for four days when this broke. He sent, like a, like the coward that he has shown himself to be, he sent Janice Jackson out to take the brunt of the slings and arrows that should have been aimed at him. And it was only after it refused, people refused to be silent, refused to be quiet about it, that he finally surfaced and was forced to answer and answer the question and address this issue. And so we certainly don't have... So his initial response uh, certainly doesn't show that any kind of commitment to owning up to his own responsibility in this. Uh, He tried to talk about it as something that preceded him. This investigation lasted, uh, covered 10 years, and he was mayor for seven of those 10 years and actually tried to get away with saying that this was something that preceded him. Um, And so what we have is a mayor who is all about political talking points in those state education hearings that you talked about. Uh, they mentioned the fact that uh, not only did he not show up, did his appointed CEO not show up, but they didn't even call the families of the student victims. They've been so focused on PR and image management that they didn't even bother to call the families. And so we certainly don't have a mayor that's committed to this. Um, I'd like to actually review some of the findings so that we can have a more uh apt conversation, a better conversation about this. So one of the things, or the things they found, particularly at the mayoral or central office level that the mayor controls, number one, they didn't do adequate background checks. And number two, 
they did not conduct proper oversight of the district and cases of sexual abuse or of the of employee handling of sexual abuse accusations. Uh, number three, they did not notify other districts when people accused of sexual abuse left CPS to find employment elsewhere. And number four, uh, they did not track abuse because they track things. In they track everything. In as, as a former principal, I know they track uh, because they're always sending you back your data on these different things they care about. But apparently that wasn't something they cared about enough to track. Uh, and when uh, the Tribune attempted to get the information, uh, they were saying, well, we, we don't keep track of this. You know, they stalled and the Tribune ultimately had to threaten a lawsuit to get them to give up this information. Mm -hmm. And so those four things are at a central office level. There's another thing that happened in the law department that involves conflict of interest where you have lawyers in CPS investigating sexual abuse claims ostensibly on behalf of the child but then using the information they get to defend themselves against the child and that child's parents when they sue. So that's another thing they found at the, the district level that's part of uh, the law department. But at the school level, what they found were employees who apparently did not know or were, did not know how to handle sexual abuse claims. That the number one thing that you have to do is call the Department of Children and Family Services. Now, many of us know this, but some thought that they themselves should investigate first before calling to make sure that this was a real claim. That's not what you're supposed to do. You don't become the investigator. You call DCFS the moment you hear the claim. And that wasn't happening. But that was happening in part because of the lack of oversight from the district and proper training going back to central office. And so when you ask me, getting back to your original question, are they doing the right things? Like part of that is changing policy and conducting oversight, doing the background checks and all those things. But one of the, and people are talking about those things. And I don't want to repeat what's already been said. What I want to add to the conversation is that you can't do any of those things, which I think need to be done without proper and adequate staffing. For example, in the background checks, one of the things they found was that they would do background checks, but sometimes things would come up in someone's record that didn't seem to be a violation that would keep you from being hired. But if you look deeper into it, you would find that this was a charge that was downgraded from a previous charge that would have gotten them, uh, that they did a plea deal. But you, when you do a regular background check, it's just sort of a computer thing. You get the, the offense and you make a decision, well, this is not the offense. But to do that detailed background check, you need personnel to actually dig into things. And CPS doesn't, it, CPS is the most understaffed school district in the state of Illinois. The average school in Illinois with 600 kids has 59 staff. The average CPS school with 600 kids has 37 staff. That's 22 fewer staff. And so when you give one person six people's jobs, things fall through the cracks. And you have that same understaffing at the central office level. And so one of the things I like to add to the conversation, in addition to holding the mayor accountable, in addition to holding the CEO accountable and changing different policies, is that none of that will work if you don't get adequate staffing to make sure those that we have the, the, human, the human capacity to follow through on those things. And But we are in a situation where the Chicago public schools are 
getting more money from the state uh, than it than they used to. But still, I think people would argue certainly not enough. Where is the money going to come from? And and I'm assuming that there are other things that you would want to do uh, oh, in the schools. Uh, you talk about fine arts. You talk about uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, music uh, that will also cost money. Where do you get those resources? Right. I want our students to have the same things. I just my son just got dropped off this morning at a summer. And he goes to summer camp at the same school where Rom's kids go for regular school. My son goes to public school, but, you know, public school just closed. So now he's at the University of Chicago Lab School for summer. You know, and we're dropping him off at the Gordon Parks Media Laboratory, where kids in, like him in the fifth grade can take documentary film production, where their curriculum involves painting, art, sculpture, uh, civics, uh, a strong civics education. They learn to play an instrument. They learn a world language. I want Chicago public schools. I want everything. Basically, they get to fulfill their full human potential and develop and cultivate it. That's what I want for every student in Chicago. And as you said, that's going to cost. And you talked about the money coming from the state. So another thing that we have to realize is that Chicago public schools, even though it's the most understaffed in the state, ranked 857 out of 858 districts and staffing, it is nowhere near the most underfunded. We actually spend $2,000 per pupil more than the average school in the state. How can we have better than average spending but worse than average staffing? Where is the money going? And so that's when we have to look back at this mayor and the previous mayor and their reckless spending. They're building, they're building dozens of new schools in the district that isn't getting new students. That's hundreds of millions of dollars that could go toward staffing, that could go toward art, that could go toward sculpture, that could go, go toward reducing class sizes. They're building new schools in a district that's not getting new students. They're paying, they're paying the mayor's campaign donors, Sodexo Magic, a custodial management company, hundreds of millions of dollars, and the Aramark Company, hundreds of millions of dollars to manage custodians and they're leaving our schools filthy. And the mayor talks tough, and then he ex extends and gives them extends their contract and gives them more of our money, so long as the campaign donations keep coming in. And so, number one, we have to stop before we ask anyone to pay an additional dime in taxes. We have to stop that corruption. We have to have rules and policies in place that prevent people or businesses who want to do business with the city from donating to the campaign of the person charged with the finances of that city. That has to happen. But then again, in getting to actual revenue solutions, we've talked about using our TIF dollars uh, more equitably. We have talked about a transaction, a financial transactions uh, tax. Uh, the mayor himself even talked about taxing downtown businesses and a tax on the uh, greatest 5% of earners back when they were talking about shutting the school or not opening up the schools. He'd never do it, but he talked about it. And that's something that we have to think about. Anything that keeps us from having to go back to working class people or poor people and hitting them up with, with regressive fees property and property taxes. We have to remember in the last election, in the last debate, in the debates with Chuy Garcia, when they asked the mayor, where are you going to get the money? He talked about TIFs. He talked about a progressive state income tax. He talked about casinos. This is all four years ago. 
But as soon as he was safely back in office, what did he do? He went straight for your property taxes, straight for regressive fees. And so, so we, we've seen his M.O. So we know exactly what he's going to do when he gets back in office if we put him back in. What I can promise taxpayers is that I will do everything possible to make sure that we get progressive revenue, that we look under every stone and we get all of the corruption out before we even think about coming and asking you for property tax increases. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is outspoken former Chicago Public School Principal Troy LaRavier, a candidate for mayor of Chicago. Um, I want to ask uh, one more education-related question uh, yeah. before we get to some other topics, uh, although we're already drifting into budget. Um, and that is the debate over elected school board, appointed school board. And if I'm reading what I've uh, read about and from you, you haven't exactly come down on really one side or the other hard on that question. You are the only person to see that because everyone assumes I am, and they're for the most part right to assume it, that I am a hardline elected school board. And I certainly support the democracy that an elected school board can bring. But it has to be representative and it has to be competent. That those are the things we really want. We just think an elected school board would get us those things. We want representation. We want it to be competent. We know what we have under ROM is not representative and incompetent. And so we want to try an elected school board so that we can get representation and competence. And so when we fashion the rules in the legislation, we have to have in mind, how can we fashion this to ensure that we get representation and we get competent people on board? For example, with the local school councils, you can't just be anyone enroll and run for your local school council. They're criteria. And so number one, you have to be a parent of a student in that school. That ensures what? Representation, right? Another thing that can qualify you to run for a seat is that you can be a teacher in that school. That ensures educational competence. So the governing body of that school, the local school council, by virtue of the criteria that are established for even running, uh, those criteria don't necessarily guarantee representation and competence, but they make it much more likely that you'll get it. And so what I say is that in as we fashion uh, legislation for the elected school board. We have to think about the kind of criteria that we want. I don't think we can just open it up, particularly in this system that's based so, that's based so much on money. We already have an elected city council, and what does that give us? A rubber stamp for the mayor. And why do we get that rubber stamp? Because of the influence of money in our elections. That same money is going to influence these local school council elections. And so the mayor will find his people he wants to run, He'll put he'll have his donors put hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars into their campaign war chest. And as a voter, I'll get 24 different mailers about the candidate that the ROM wants to see in. And I'll probably get one, if any, on the one that actually will be representative and will be competent. And so you're subjecting it to that same system. So another thing that I say is that we have to get campaign finance reform, too, if we want to make sure that that election produces representation and competence. Would you be open to the idea of a kind of hybrid board where some of the members are appointed and some are uh, some are uh, elected with the idea that there might be some of those guidelines about competency? Exactly. 
I'd be open to it with those criteria. In fact, if the state doesn't pass elected board school elected school board legislation, then I will work with community members and parents and stakeholders to establish criteria that I as mayor will have to follow in my pick so that I can give the state an example of what uh, a good system for selecting school board members looks like that ensures this representation and ensures this competence. Uh, another uh, quick question here, uh, only because I because two other candidates who've, uh, whom I've interviewed in the last several weeks have uh, mentioned this. Uh, Gary McCarthy and Willie Wilson both have proposed casino gaming as a way to raise revenue. Uh, I understand you're not enamored with that. I'm not. You know, I wouldn't take it completely off the table, but it would be the last thing on one of the last things on with along with property tax increases. It, it would be one of the last things on the table. And I'm not for it because it's regressive. Typically, uh, people who are on the lower income scale, which is working class people. Again, it's another regressive tax. Those are the people who frequent casinos. And so once again, we're trying to fund our city on the backs of people who have the least. If we want an equitable system we have to go to people who have the most, but we can't go to them without saying, look, I've talked to finance folks. You know, I was principal at Blaine elementary school and I had a lot, a lot of rich parents there. And I'll never forget, you know, this was echoed quite a bit, but one parent said it quite well. He said, you know, I wouldn't mind paying more property taxes to support schools. You know, I just don't want my money to be sent to one of the mayor's campaign donors. I don't want my money to be spent corruptly. And so when they talk about tax increases, and I know this money is going being wasted in a corrupt system. I don't want to hear it. And so I believe that. I agree with that. I think he has a good point, which is why I start the conversation about revenue with getting anti-corruption ordinances through city council and through the state legislature so that when we come to taxpayers, they know their money is actually going to be used in, 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 in a way that has some integrity and not corruptly. Hey, let's turn to public safety. Um, the numbers show murders are down, shootings are up, uh, guns are still coming across the border from Indiana and other places and down south. Um, what are the solutions that you uh, want to see or think have to be discussed? So number one, you can't trust any numbers that comes out of the Emanuel administration. They've shown that his high school graduation rate numbers were fake. They've shown that his city college graduation rate numbers were fake. Uh, and in fact, the murder rate, um, I believe it was Noah Isaacson and a partner of his over at Chicago Magazine, um, David Bernstein, I want to say, uh, did a detailed investigation of the murder rate numbers and found that they had artificially deflated the murder rate numbers by going in and reclassifying murders as, what was it called, uh, non-criminal death investigations. So a woman found bound and gagged in a warehouse. This is a real case. Bound and gagged in a warehouse, dead, decomposing. They didn't classify that as a murder. They classified it as a non-criminal death investigation. And the worst thing about it is that when you do that, when you don't classify it as a murder, guess what? You don't get a murder investigation. So that woman's murderer continues to go free. A woman who's her and her son killed in an arson fire. They found gasoline at the bottom of the steps, classified it again as a non-criminal death investigation. And so they find these, and this was under Gary McCarthy. Ron brought 
him in to do this so that they can artificially deflate murder rate to look as if they were doing something when they were actually producing a situation that would in eventually create more murders because you're allowing murderers to go free when you classify that way because you don't investigate them. Um, but in the larger sense of what we do about it, two of my major responses to that are education and jobs. That when I was young, I grew up in the slums and my mother would send me to my grandparents' house in West Inglewood, a working class section, to get me away from the violence. Every weekend, every spring break, every summer, I'm over there. And they're both black communities, but one is impoverished and the other is a working class black community. And that was the difference. That's, that's what the difference was in terms of stemming the violence, that everyone had access to work. My grandfather worked at Consolidated Freightways. My grandmother worked at Michael Reese Hospital in the laundry. My best friend down the street, his father worked at um, the railroad. Uh, the girl across the street whom I eventually married, her father worked for the steel mill. Her mother worked for Grace Chemical Plant. Everyone had work. And so that is answer number one. We have to improve uh, the economic situation. E economic situation. Answer number two is education. How many kids will get the kind of education I talked about earlier? The kinds of education Rom's kids get at the University of Chicago Lab School and then go out and pick up a gun, right? And so there's the preventative aspect to it. And then, of course, there's dealing with what we have right now, right? Uh, our clearance rate is less than 20%. We have half as many, half the percentage of detectives on our force as New York or LA. We don't have a commitment to actually finding the murder, the people who are committing the murders we have, let alone preventing future ones. And so I think addressing that uh, is also a, a, um, a path that we need to take to uh, stem the violence. Uh, this also touches on the issue of... Uh police accountability, uh, tangentially. Uh, and that is, what's your feeling about the uh, plan for a $95 million police and fire academy on the West Side? The pros, of course, jobs, better training. The cons, of course, it's $95 million. So it's not better training. People have to understand what impacts training. As a principal, I needed to train my teachers. That's how we got blamed to be the number one school in the city. We changed curriculum and then we changed instruction. And part of in changing instruction or improving instruction was improving the training of our teachers. I didn't need a new building to do that. I needed people. Again, we get back to staffing and personnel. So we brought people in who had expertise, right? And we invested in that. We didn't invest in brick and mortar. We invested in human capacity, right? What Ram is doing, well, you need several things if you want to improve an institution, if you want to improve training. You need to invest in curriculum. You need to invest in instruction. You need to invest in the people who are going to deliver that instruction. You need to invest in changing the ethos of the institution and you need to invest in space. All that building does is give us space. It doesn't, it doesn't, if you had this building 20 years ago, it wouldn't have changed the thing about what Jason Van Dyke did when he saw Laquan McDonald. Right? We have to change the ethos, the curriculum, the instruction, uh, and get the personnel and invest in the personnel to do it. And he's wasting the money that we have to do that by investing $95 million in a building. We've only got about a minute left, but do you not believe that uh, the kind of training that has been instituted now, the changes that have been made, 
under Eddie Johnson are, do you think those aren't the kinds of things that would make a difference down the road? The Department of Justice report lists 99 recommendations that for, for what needs to be changed. Many of them involve training. Uh, and this administration has addressed less than 40 of them. Okay? And this building is not going to change that. Um, last thing, uh, very quickly, are you not uh, worried about diluting, having so many candidates diluting the, uh, what could be concerned, the anti-ROM vote? Absolutely not. I believe in democracy. I think that we have to have a candidate in who can defeat ROM. And the only way to do that is not to all meet and decide which one of us is going to do it, as some people suggest, and have certain people buy out. You decide it, you figure it out by allowing the voters to tell you, right? And so what if we all, what if someone drops out and that just happened to have been the one who, who could have beat Trump? You, I learned from the, the Trump presidency, right? We thought Hillary was the one who could have defeated him, right? And they wanted the others to get out. And as a result of that, we didn't get the one in who could have defeated Trump. We cannot make that mistake, same mistake. I welcome everybody all voices. We have to get the candidate in who can defeat Rom. I think I'm the one, but I think the voters will let us know if that's true. That's going to be the final word. That is Troy LaRavier, mayoral candidate. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, WBBMNewsRadio.com. You can also find our uh, podcast on Radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of That Issue. I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.